0: My friends, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 261, and today I'm talking about kind of tolerance, kind of tolerance, or maybe what I'm talking about is Christian tolerance. Maybe what I'm talking about is kind of a generous way of looking at fellow Christians uh, and how we maybe should collaborate more than we uh, tend to do sometimes. So uh, that's kind of the heart of the day. In fact, I was kind of juggling two different topics. I wanted to deal with kind of not being victims as Christians in our culture. I'll probably do that one next week. Uh, And I thought I'd do this one this week, but boy, it was like a toss-up. Because both have been on my mind lately. Both are important to me. Now, getting to business here real quick. uh, Missed last week because my office, for those who are watching at least, uh, was completely dismantled. Had to have carpet reinstalled after carpet had been installed. And if you look kind of in the corner behind me, you'll see some books. For those listening, I literally have thousands of books. This is not an exaggeration. I have eight bookshelves that are... 35 inches wide and eight feet tall. They have seven shelves total per shelf. I got eight of those total. That's a lot of books. And so I had to hire a friend of mine to move everything out because I didn't want to carry them all the way downstairs because I'm an old man now. That's like 150 trips total between books up, and then back down, and all that, it's just madness, and so I'm like, man, I didn't want to do that, so I had somebody else do it, but now my office is back in order, and for those watching, it's apparently a marketing campaign for T-Mobile, because I have my kind of, I don't know, pinkish, purplish t mobile lights on today, or something like that, so I don't know, but you know what, that's not what's important, but that's what I missed last week, Uh, and so that's why I got two kind of in the can that I could choose from, but I wanted to deal with this one today. Because increasingly, I have been uh, convicted by a number of things as I kind of read through the New Testament. And and I find that I'm probably in a little bit of a mode right now where when I'm reading it, I'm trying to get up over the top of it. And instead of getting into uh, all of the trees, I'm trying to kind of look at the forest and just go like, man, what is the forest message to the church and to Christians uh, in a world that is hurting, broken, broken, lost, uh, sometimes hostile, sometimes confused by the mis- message of the Christian faith. Like, how should we operate within all of that? And there's one posture, which is how we operate toward the world. Uh, there's another posture in how we respond to how the world treats us. And yet there's another posture about how we relate to one another. And that's the one I've been thinking about. And not just within our local churches, though, I think that's incredibly value. And I think valuable, I think there's a ton of stuff to listen to and learn from right there. But I'm thinking about just kind of the more general Christian template, right? Because when I read the New Testament, one of the things I see is of chief importance is the unity of the faith the unity of the body of Christ. And I think sometimes where we get a little uh, myopic is that we forget that the body of Christ is not simply my local church, uh, but the body of Christ kind of spans ages. It spans realms. The body of Christ is in heaven. The body of Christ is on earth. The body of Christ is historic. The body of Christ is present. Honestly, the body of Christ is also future because it's eschatological. There's our fancy word for the day. Uh, And so all of that is true, and it is not bound by any singular Christian tradition, Um, though there are different traditions for sure, and there's different denominations, and there's different expressions between the Eastern Church Church, the Western Church and the Western Church, the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church. In and, and the Protestant church, there's like, I don't know, thirty-one flavors cubed, right? Like there's so many different options there. And yet all of this is still representative of the body of Christ. And I think historically there has been this idea of we cordon off, we're the right ones, everybody else is the wrong ones. And and I'm not sure. The New Testament would affirm that concept. It would certainly affirm the fact that there can be error. It would certainly affirm the fact that there can even be heresy. But at the same time, it's really advocating for pursuing peace, peacemaking, uh, kind of unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, a sense of greater kind of global fellowship, fellowship between all who claim the name of Christ. Uh, even if that means at times we have boundaries and borders and we have certain distinctives, there is still the sense of like, hey man, though, that's, that is my, that is my family over there. We may not agree on how the family is reared or raised always, but that's still family over there, right? It's kind of like uh, seeing our extended family versus our nuclear family. Like for the Boswells, we had certain values and priorities and things like that as a home, but we're connected to a broader group of people, the Abbots and the Woffords and, you know, the Stuarts and the list can go on and on and on. The fights, you know, like we have this extended thing and, and it's still all family, even though our home may do things uniquely, the family overall is still connected. and And I think this is the important thing for us as followers of Jesus in the modern era to say, we need to elevate this more because what the world needs to see is not simply a unified front of those who claim Christ, but I think a generous front at that, a compassionate front, one that realizes that at the core of our relationship to God, we are trusting heavily in the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, and the faithfulness of God to to secure us in this rescue endeavor that he's been a a part of, in this healing of our sickness of sin and carrying us on to completion. That is not what we do. That is what he has done. And if it's what he has done, then I do. I I think we need to have uh, kind of a conscious display of how we're aware of that reality. And because of that, because we're aware of the fact that it's it's his grace and his faithfulness toward us, even more than our faith, it's his faithfulness in light of our faith, or it's his faithfulness even despite our lack of faith at times. That's the core of the Christian tradition. That's why we want to have this sense of generosity and uh, a sense of even tolerance of our differences for the sake of the greater thing that we agree on, which is the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the current um, reign of Christ and uh, presence of Christ in the context of the church. And then from that we go, man. I want to then fight for unity, for understanding, for peacemaking, for grace between my brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, there's this passage in Colossians that really kind of stuck with me uh, this week when I was thinking about it. It's Colossians 3.14, you know, and, and it's all about the power and priority of Christian unity, and it has this list of things like, hey, because you have this new nature put on kindness and compassion and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and love and all these kinds of really positive things, and then it says, above all, and this is why I like this, it's like he listed really critical things like forgiveness and being bound in in, in in the sense of love with one another and all these really, again, we would say like fruit of the spirit kind of traits, but then he says above all clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And so what I love about this is it kind of tells us in the order of strata here, uh, here is what is above all. Right? So have the sense of love, which then translates into uh, perfect harmony with one another. And then from there, he's going to say, hey, let the word of Christ dwell in you and richly share with one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, all these different kinds of features. But the idea of unity comes back to the center point again. And this is the point that I think is important for us to realize when it comes to the different expressions of Christianity that are in our world. We need to see that what Christianity is like, you ready? This is maybe even going to be the title for today. Christianity is much more like a cheesecake factory menu. Then it is an in and out menu, all right? This is the way I'm kind of thinking about this, right? So uh, if you've ever been to In-N-Out, here's what you know. You don't have many options, right? It's like you got like three burgers, one fry, a shake, a couple of drinks, that's it, right? Like they just cordon off the idea of having like real diversification, real option before you. It's just like a very channeled menu. It's like a walled garden where it this is what you get. That's it. You're deciding whether you want pickles or no pickles, but that's about it, right? Like, like that's the in and out menu, but you go to cheesecake factory and it's like, it's like a catalog of all these different options, right? You got chicken options, beef options, vegan options. You've got vegetarianism and you've got, you know, all kinds of drink, I mean, you name it, it's on there, right? And here's the thing that I think is important to really kind of then consider for us as, as Christians, right? And it's the idea that says, you know what? When it comes to my little corner of the world, that is the flavor of the faith that resonates with me, that speaks to me, that Jesus uses in my life. But my own little corner of the world is not the only corner. It's not the best corner. It's not the most right corner necessarily. It's just the one that God has used in my life to grow me more into the image of Christ. But there are other places, other corners, other flavors, other parts of the menu that are just as valuable, just as powerful in the lives of those people that it resonates with. And that's okay too. Now, I'm not trying to say that that means everything is open and there's nothing that's shut and you know we're off to the races in every conceivable way. But at the same time, what I think is true about all the different flavors of the Christian tradition, especially when you look historically and then you look presently, is here's what we should all have enough humility to know. We're all right and we're all wrong at different points, right? So, uh, you know, like like in the Protestant tradition, I'm in that tradition and you know what as far as I understand it I look and go man I I think we're trying to do our best to get all these ideas really really right Um, but in there I would be foolish and proud to think that everything that I believe is just right according to God and I've nailed it and then the mass majority of Christians in the world and in history were just wrong You know, and and I go, that's the danger because what happens there, and this is what has happened throughout church history, we kind of anathemize one another. It's like, we think we're right. We think you're wrong. You're going to hell. So go to hell. We're going to heaven because we're the only ones that got this thing figured out. And it's like, as soon as we're in that space, it's problematic, right? This is where, you know, pride has this sense of almost then endowing us with this, Kind of opinion of, or this bias toward, uh, we're a little bit more superior. You're a little bit more inferior. We're we're cutting the truth more straight. You're not cutting the truth accurately. And we assume that our time, our place, our methodologies, our interpretive models have finally kind of tipped the scale in a way that nobody's ever f- figured out before. And and that's where again, I think the way the new Testament is always trying to give us the high orbit picture is like, Oh, you dwell with dependency. You dwell with humility. You dwell with obedience. You're you're striving in your faithfulness and faith and the power of the spirit. And you're doing this for the glory of Jesus. But the notion of, and we're the most right. That's the thing that almost makes us most wrong in the process of that. And then the world sees that they see all the divisions among Christians and they go like, okay, you guys can't nail it down. Like the Eastern Orthodox thinks one thing, the Catholics think another thing, the Protestants think yet a third thing, and under the Protestants, they think 700 other things. And so if the Bible is the word of God and the Bible is inspired and inerrant, but none of you can agree on what it fully says, and so you have all your little subflavors, why bother? And we tend to kind of fight about the sub flavors. Instead, we should say, isn't that cool? It's more like a cheesecake menu, right? It's, it's like Cheesecake Factory. It's like like 31 flavors. It's not just vanilla and chocolate and that's it, you know? It's like, no, there's all these different flavors that the spirit and Christ uses to shape and develop the church over the course of history and in the kind of current topography of the different parts of the world to accomplish his goals, right? This is what I love about it. Instead of it being like, let's fight about this. It's more like, Hey, let's appreciate this. Even though we can still be in our own tradition and spaces and to the best of our conscience, we're trying to do that right. And, and really figure out what it says to the best of our conscience. Right. And then holding to that. Cause Paul talks about that. And I think that's part of it. It's like, I'm in the tradition I'm in, in part, because that is where my conscience feels most free and connected to what I think God, Spirit, and Scripture are revealing but there are others in other Christian traditions where they step into mind and their their conscience is not free to embrace those things. And, and therefore, in their tradition, their conscience is more free. It feels like they're more honoring to Christ. They're more being biblical. They're more honoring whatever the authoritative structure that's been handed down in their tradition has maintained because every one of our traditions has an authoritative structure that's been handed down. Like, in the Protestant tradition, we say sola scriptura, and, and I've talked about this here recently on one of the podcasts where I'm like, it's, it's sola scriptura, but it's also sola scriptura plus the authorities that I trust to interpret thor, sola scriptura and not the authorities I don't trust. So if I'm a Calvinist, I go, I trust the Calvinist authorities to interpret the scripture. I don't trust the Arminian authorities to interpret the scriptures. So it's scripture and some level of tradition combined that even we as Protestants would have to acknowledge is true for us. And so... This is why I think it's important to say, hey, when it comes to conscience, that's part of what dictates the flavor that we tend to dwell in. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Romans 14 again says, hey, if this violates your conscience, it's sin for you. And so part of this is it's not as objective as we like to think. Sometimes it's a little subjective too, right? Our interpretive models, how we're approaching a very deep, complex, nuanced, uh, sometimes a little tough to fully wrap our mind around Bible, like in that space, I think what the Holy Spirit uses is then conscience as we're approaching that and going, okay, this is where I find a little bit more stability and security. And therefore, yeah, I'm a little bit more free to express myself in a more robust way because this is the flavor that fits for me. All right. And so for example, for me, I can drill down my flavors. So I can say what I know is that I'm first Christian and I'll, I'll, maybe this is what I want to maintain because I almost titled this why I'm a Christian Protestant and not a Protestant Christian, <laughs> all right? Because I think there should be like these descending orders of magnitude where with every descending order, there's a part that says, you know what? This both gives me deeper encouragement, but also I must hold all of these things with a little bit lighter hand because the more I drill down in specificity, the more the reality that I might be flawed or errant in the specifics. So let me give you kind of the way I pull this together. So I say I'm Christian, which means I'm holding to the great uh, historic creeds, like the Nicene Creed, for example, you know, and I'm like, here's who God is. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who the Holy Spirit is. Here's what the gospel is, you know, like very simplified ideas that, that we go, man, this is the definition of the Christian faith as held by Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox and all the other little subgroups that are out there, right? We go like, hey, this is how the early church said, we know you are among us. And their their system was relatively simple and tight, you know? And so it, it wasn't exhaustive. It wasn't multi-pages. It fits on one page. It's just not a lot of information, right? And I go, that's what makes me Christian. I go, that's the distinctive. This is why I'm not Muslim. It's why I'm not Jewish. I'm Christian, right? But then I go, but I'm also a Protestant Christian. And automatically, then I realize that my form of Christianity in the scope of the whole history of the church is relatively young. So roughly 500 years, right? So automatically, there are things I believe within my system that historic Christians may not have believed. Christians for 1,500 years may not have believed. We've kind of tacked in some new ideas. And I go, in there, we might be more right. We might have been honing more and getting more clarity, which is really, really good. And at the same time, there is potential in there to be wrong, right? Because we decided after 1,500 years, we figured out something nobody else ever had. And there's always a risk in there of like, wow, you're going against 1,500 years of tradition maybe. We should be really sober about that. But I go, man, this makes sense to me. When I read the Bible, I I I see this is the message. But in there I have a certain level of like like cautionary tale where where I say, you know what? Um I get like Luther saying, the just will live by faith, like in Romans. And we go, see, I'm gonna I'm gonna plant my flag and the just will live by faith. But kind of in the 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 language there, it can also mean the just will live by faithfulness and there it's reflective of God. So it may not be that, hey The just live by what I can muster as faith, but rather the just live because God is faithful to his plan and it's being executed. So the message of the just will live by faith or the just will live by faithfulness, it could be very Protestant or it could be something other than what we kind of cleave to as Protestants. And therefore I go, I believe that, but I also Think the just live by God's faithfulness. And so I'm Protestant, but I'm Protestant with a little bit of like a like a hitch in there. Like, okay, I, I'm that, but I'm I also realize that there's another way to read that. And that also has some pretty great value. So I still stay in the Protestant lane, but I realize that, yeah, there's other ways that this has been seen by my historic brothers and sisters in Christ, of whom that is also the body of Christ, right? Body of Christ is in heaven, the body of Christ is on earth. So I'm Christian first. Then I'm Protestant. Next, we could say I'm evangelical, right? Because you can have uh, people that are Protestant, but maybe not quite evangelical. So I fall into that realm of how I see scripture is much more tight than loose, Uh, how I see Uh, grace and faith is probably much more tight than loose. I'm looking at that a little bit more like a, like a, like a courtroom concept. But in there, I look at the Eastern Orthodox tradition where they look at this subject matter a little bit more like relationally that sin is a sickness more than sin is a violation of a law that uh, God is seeking to be a healer more than God is a just judge. And I go, well, we kind of fall into that more just judge law courtroom mentality in the evangelical tradition. And even with the Bible, we kind of see this as more of a inspired and errant, you know, this airtight thing. They kind of go, well, it's the, it's the forest more than the trees. We tend to care about the trees more than the forest. And while I'm in the tradition that I'm in, I recognize like, hey, there is some value on that other side that isn't bad or I can learn from that or maybe I need to graph some of those ideas into my ideas because what happens is the more we define ourselves it's very easy to just kind of take ourselves to the bottom of the well and not ever explore or rethink our own bottom of the well tradition and we might have missed some really valuable things or we might be holding to things that when we get to stand before Jesus he'll be like I was totally wrong but you know what that was your conscience. And I honor the fact that it's your conscience and my grace saves you, not your works. And so even where you're wrong, my grace kind of deals with that, but you were wrong, right? So it's kind of acknowledging like we're always in a process of learning. We're always reforming. And so for me, I go, I am Christian, Protestant, evangelical. But as I go down, I realize with every layer, I I need humility more than I need this idea of I'm right conviction. So Next, what after evangelical? Now I would be, you see my list here, I would be what I would call Calvinist in this, right? Because Arminians are actually evangelicals. Uh, Anabaptists are evangelicals, in my opinion. Uh, and so evangelicals are not just those who are reformed in their theological orientation or Calvinists. There's all kinds of different evangelicals, but my breed is Calvinism, right? But then in this, we go, oh, see, he's a Calvinist and Calvinists mean this. Well, Here's the thing. There are different flavors of Calvinism, right? So I would probably be a little bit more like a, like a Karl Barth Calvinist, or I'd be a little bit more of a Jürgen Moltmann Calvinist. I'd be less of an R.C. Sproul Calvinist or less of a John MacArthur Calvinist or, or a John Piper Calvinist. Like I'm, probably a little Keller-esque if you know Tim Keller, but at the same time, somebody that's not a Calvinist, but is more Anglican is N.T. Wright. And I look at N.T. Wright and he has some things on justification and I go, well, that kind of makes some sense too in relationship to this. And so there's a hybrid model that goes on. And so while I'm Calvinist, I'm not the stereotypical one that everybody thinks as the North American Calvinist of the last 50 years, right? So, so this is where, again, I get into all these nuances simply to say the more we drill down and we get particular in our flavor, the beauty is, man, you find a home there, you find encouragement there, it enriches your soul there, there is An honesty about, hey, I am wrestling with the text. I am wrestling with my tradition. I'm wrestling with all the implications of this as honestly as I can. And God, that's what you want from me. Honestly, wrestling with your word, wrestling in the spirit. This is where it takes me. And at the same time, I also know there's a lot of extensions and implications and connecting dots that I'm doing not inside the text itself, but I'm doing it through philosophy. I'm doing it through logic. I'm doing it through formulas. I'm doing it through systematizing. And in there, that's a lot of human weakness, trying to come up with understanding something as grand and deep and powerful as your revealed truth. And if there's anything in 2000 years of Christian history, it teaches us is that lots of people have wrestled authentically, earnestly, sincerely, in ways that were flawed at times, in ways that were incredibly human sometimes, in ways that were driven by financial motivations, power motivations, political motivations, uh, just friction, fighting. You know, like I look at Luther and the Catholic Church and and I go, I don't think that was just purely this endeavor of unadulterated quest for truth. I I, I think when you kind of look at all of that, the potential for bitterness and rivalry and vindictiveness were all in there too on both sides. And that oftentimes is what drives schism. It's not just like a bunch of academics sitting down and having a peer review paper. No, there's emotions in there. There's agendas that fall into there. All of that is in there. Like the, the, the process of developing kind of Christian tradition and the process of trying to ascertain biblical truth is tumultuous. And this brings me back to why humility is necessary, and why I love Paul's words about above all else, in love, try to strive together in perfect harmony. It's like that gives us the rules to this whole other endeavor. So when I look around at my community, for example, and we have a Catholic church and we have uh, uh, more of a a Pentecostal tongue speaking church, and we have a little bit more of an Arminian type church that kind of falls into more of the wild at heart, John Eldridge kind of model. And then down the road, we have a real seeker type church, you know, like, like, and then down the road from there, we have a very Calvinist, very tight, uh, very more the John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul type Counted Calvinist church, like all of that. I go, and people are all collecting there because that's where their conscience is free to most worship. That is where their conscience is free to most enjoy God. That is where they feel a sense of spiritual safety and security, and they can rally to that. And I love that. But what I also want to encourage in that is each of those clusters have a generosity toward the other clusters. Right, that we all realize that we're a part of this greater extended family, and that there's beauty in that extended family. And sometimes, you know, we all swap around between family. You know, like there are people that are leaving the evangelical tradition and going into other traditions. There are people that are leaving the Catholic tradition and going into the evangelical tradition. Like people are always kind of bouncing around. The bricks are bouncing around, but the bricks are all a part of the same church. Now, I know some of us are going to really struggle with this because you're like, no. Nope. Catholics aren't saved. Nope, Eastern Orthodox aren't saved. Nope, because and we have a list of all who isn't saved. And I I just go back to the New Testament. When I get up over the trees, I go, I don't see anybody in the New Testament outside of Jesus, and he has the authority. I don't see anybody questioning the salvation of others that claim to be believers. I don't see that. Um, I see Paul saying, I'm concerned that I need to come to you and see Christ formed in you again, right? That was in Galatians, which even then for the Calvinist should freak out. What does he mean? Christ formed in you again. I mean, they had him and then they lost him. And what's that mean? Like we can get all into those messes too. But even Paul did not question the salvation of people, right? He was always just focused on, Hey, if you claim Jesus, let's get on track. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, that's the thing. It's like, you claim Jesus, let's deal with this. We're going to treat you like a believer. Right. Um, and so like the only person that ever seems to get into questioning people's salvation is Jesus and he's God and he can, cause he knows, cause he's the only one that really has the power to save anybody. Cause God saves, we don't save ourselves. We don't save others. God saves sinners. That's his role. And so Jesus could say that, but for us, I think it's important to say, Hey, we need to be honest, and authentic in our expression and we need to see need to see that God has value and other expressions. And while those other expressions may not nourish my soul, it does nourish those souls. And I can have generosity toward that. I can still have a sense of unity of Hey, I love, I love that Jesus is most loved in your tradition by what you do over there. And hopefully, over here, Jesus is most loved by what we do in this tradition over here. And part of this is then in a uh, is a journey of not stereotyping other traditions, right? And, and saying, oh, see, this is, they believe this and this is why they're wrong. It's almost like you have to interact and realize that within every tradition, there is probably people that are authentic and there's probably people that are inauthentic. There are people that have greater understanding and there's people that have lesser understanding, you know? And, and it's like, I'm not sure that the criteria for salvation is you know everything and everything you know is right as much as you're throwing yourself on the salvation, the grace, the rescue. Of God, you're like Jesus came for this very problem. Jesus died for my sins, including my religious, theological, moral, church-oriented sins, <laughs> including the sins of my tradition. Um, he died for those things. Rose to to bring vindication to me, despite all of those things that are true of me and will continue to be true of me at different levels. And therefore, we are we are saved solely by grace, not by our works, our theological works, our tradition works you know, all of that stuff, right? Our denominational works, that's not by which we're saved. Now, am I trying to say that there is, you know, no place for truth? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's a tremendous place for truth. This is why we all want to strive for the truth, but we strive in humility. We strive always learning and we strive hopefully even appreciating our differences, Learning from our differences, maybe the difference is even more secure in our own heritage. Like we go, I, I've read about that difference. I've talked to these people in this difference. And now I feel even more secure in the position that I hold. But in that, I appreciate the journey that I went on to try to understand somebody else's position. And even though I may disagree, I appreciate even their sincerity and their homework to that. And their thinking through that because I think that's the key. That's what sanctification is all about in my mind. Sanctification is all about growing and it's all about relying. And I think the more we grow and rely, I think the more we strive for unity more than division, I think the more we show the world that, you know what, Jesus displays himself in his church in many flavors because it's like a cheesecake factory menu. It's not like In-N-Out Burger. We may not be the church for you. We may not even be the tradition for you. That's okay. Jesus works in a lot of different spaces in his church because his church is global. His church is unhinged by so many different things, and his church is making a mark in the world, and we want to be a part of that. Instead of critiquing our friends, boy, we want to say, you know what? That's awesome over there. I'm glad to see Jesus doing stuff over there. That's fantastic. And if there's places where we authentically honestly go, that's massively an error. You know what we should do? We should just really pray that the Holy Spirit works in that more than critique and go after and everything else, because we're not apostles. Like people will say that, well, Paul did it. Paul was an apostle, right? Like we don't have that insight. The last time I checked, my words can't be put in scripture and be considered infallible. So again, I go, we we pray for, we learn from, we educate. Maybe we know how to define the differences between ideas and, and, and that should become sufficient to really working through some of these things. But the heart again is saying, I wanna fight for, strive for growing, and unity, and showing brotherly love, and displaying to the world a community of faith that is broad, and diverse, and beautiful, and is, in, in, is inviting them to join in to that, right? Because again, we're not going to be the flavor for everybody, but I believe Jesus in his wisdom and love has given a flavor for everybody out there, and we should long for that to be connected so that they can enjoy their relationship with him. See, to me, this is really part of the essence of being an everyday missionary. It's figuring out those solutions, making those investments, showing that kind of love and unity within the overall body of Christ, appreciating the flavors and differences. And from that saying, hey, man, we may not be it, but boy, I hope you find the one that is because Jesus is beautiful in all spaces. I believe the more we think like that, we act like that, we push that, the more we'll be effective everyday missionaries.